0: This episode of the Backside Ground Balls podcast is presented by The Performance Academy. For all of your athletic training needs, train with purpose at The Performance Academy. TPA houses a number of training resources from private baseball and softball instruction to team sports performance classes. Utilize advanced technologies like Output Sports, Hit Tracks, and TrackMan to take your game to the next level. On top of our elite staff and advanced technological capabilities, be a part of the TPA family and take advantage of the many resources our facility has to offer. Want to go to a game? How about a concert? How about going to see classical music? Whatever you're into, there's only one place to get your tickets. Thankfully, we are partnered with SeatGeek, the essential resource for live events. For any of your ticket needs, make sure you go over to SeatGeek.com and use the code BACKSIDEGROUNDBALL to receive $20 off your first purchase. Again, that is SeatGeek.com. Promo code backside ground ball to receive $20 off your first purchase. We are super excited to announce that we are now partnering with Routine Baseball for all of your clothing needs, athleisure, the sickest baseball gear you can get. We're talking hoodies, shorts, sweatpants, sunglasses hats, any baseball style you can imagine. Routine Baseball has it, and we are now partnered with them. All you got to do is go to routine.com backslash backside ground ball. That's a mouthful, so I'm going to say it again. It's routine.com backslash backside ground ball, and check out all the different options they have. You will receive 10% off your order today. One more time, routine.com backslash backside ground ball, and get 10 Percent off your order today,
1: powered by Riverside.
2: Welcome back to episode 113 of the Backside Ground Balls podcast. Super excited to be back here on the pod. My name is Trevor Powers, and I am joined by my co-host, Dan Galati. We have a super fun episode today. We've already been chalking it up for almost 30 minutes off air, but we have San Cool Singham from the Air Force Academy. He's a senior infielder back-to-back Mountain West player of the year. Uh, Preseason Golden Spikes watch list for two straight seasons. The accolades go on and on. Sam, thank you for joining us on the podcast here. Thank you guys for having me, man. I'm excited to get it going. I know you're a humble guy, so I'm sure you hate having to hear about all the the accolades, preseason, back-to-back Mountain West player of the year. Um, But obviously, we're going to talk a lot in detail about – your story and kind of how you got to air force for our listeners that might not know. I know a lot of the TPA families do listen. You were a TPA player. Uh, You played for Danny and when did you graduate high school? 2020, 2020. So, and a COVID guy, man, you faced a lot of adversity (laughs) through that situation getting recruited. Um, So obviously we'll start a little bit talking about the recruiting process itself, you know, Air Force is a unique situation for athletes to go into. I think it's one that's probably underrated when guys are thinking about finding the right fit for, for their school. Talk a little bit about what was so appealing about the opportunity to play baseball at any service Academy, but specifically Air Force when it was coming to making that college decision for you.
1: I was definitely one of those folks that didn't think much of it. Um, I I think I played a good game down in East Cobb and, Danny came up to me after the game and said, "Hey, uh, these couple schools are looking at you, and one of them was Air Force, and and honestly, that was the one I blew off the most because I didn't, you know, I don't have any family in the military really, besides um, a cousin and an uncle, and I never really thought about the military in any capacity, and so I didn't really take it that seriously. Uh, coach Cash, those our head co- our head coach here, called me up a bunch. I talked to some of the assistant guys and." it really seemed like they cared more than other schools I had talked to. And then when I went out on a visit, that's what really kind of made my mind up. Um, Just seeing all the things that the academy has to offer academically, militarily, um, and then obviously baseball-wise, it it made me realize that, you know, at some point you need a plan for life outside of baseball. And then even though obviously you want to play, everyone wants to play for as long as they can being able to be well-rounded and, and have the, you know, academic aspect the Academy offers and, and kind of the military side too. That's kind of what helped me make my decision. Was there any in- intimidation
0: involved when you're choosing a service Academy? Cause like you said, you, you didn't have a ton of family in, in the military, so you might not have been as well-versed in kind of the, the days in and days out of it.
1: Was there intimidation going into that? A hundred percent. I think I honestly had no idea what I was getting myself into. And if, You asked me four years ago what I was going into. I would have been completely wrong in whatever I said. And so I think all the service academies kind of have that intimidation factor because mainly because people don't understand what they do and what they're about and what your day-to-day is here. Um, You know, when you walk outside, you don't see kids running around with guns and stuff like that. Um, At the end of the day, it is a college. Uh, You have basic training your first summer here um, for – five and a half six weeks and after that it's a lot of focus on school and sports at the end of the day and the military training kind of goes down throughout the years to the point where when you're a senior um, they're like hey at this point you should have already developed all these skills to be a leader in the air force
2: or whatever branch
1: and also be able to balance that with the classes you're taking and, and the sport
2: you're playing so you mentioned the day-to-day of being a student athlete at, at an academy, and we hear a lot of times, I mean, Dan and you were talking off-air a little bit, Dan mentioned how the typical Division I athlete will tell you how busy they are, but they don't really put into perspective how much a service academy Division one athlete crams into that setting of a day. Kind of walk us through, if you don't mind, you don't have to go into the specifics of what a day-to-day looks like, what time you wake up, what time you're starting to get going with classes, and obviously... How do you cram in lift, early work, practice, and all the stuff that comes with that as well? Mm-hmm.
1: So I think uh, I wake up at about six twenty ish. I'll go and get breakfast usually with some of the fellas at our dining hall, and then classes from seven thirty to eleven thirty. You will occasionally have off periods in there, so it's sort of set up like an eight day B day schedule. Um, we call them M days and T days because we try to be fancy, but off periods you're knocking out homework whatever else you get an extra instruction from your teachers lunch is always around eleven forty-five ish um monday wednesday friday we'll have a formation before lunch after lunch you'll have about an hour block of some military training um, you don't have it every day but you know we'll have briefs other stuff like that practice 215 to 5 lift 5 to 6 so Early work is tough on days where you don't have that military training block you can go down early. A lot of times for us it's late work, so um, you'll ask the coach during practice, hey, can you stay after lift today, come back down, so I can get extra swings, extra ground balls, whatever it is you need. Um, so I think that's one thing that you know I've loved about the coaching staff here is because obviously you know they have families and stuff too, but they've always been willing to stay late help us out with stuff, and and that's why I'm super appreciative to them. But then, yeah, I mean, after practice, uh, get back to your room after dinner around 7-ish, 7.30, and then homework, studying and stuff, and, and getting to bed and getting up and do it again.
0: I know we want to dive more into the baseball thing here. We are a baseball podcast, but it's just I have so much respect for, for people like you who go to these academies. So I just am curious, where do you feel like personally you've kind of grown the most having that structure and learning those disciplines that you have um, kind of as a person since you've been there? I
1: think the two biggest things are uh, time management, just being able to They put so much on your plate. And it's realizing that you don't always have to get it all done, but prioritizing what you need to get done and then prioritizing the time to get that stuff done is the first thing. And the second thing is being able to handle criticism because the military they'll get mad at you for a lot of stuff that may seem small, but there's a reason they're getting mad at you for it. And so being able to handle that and being able to say, okay, I'll be better next time. Um, I'll improve on this. And so, You know, you don't have to worry about that, that kind of stuff. I think those two things are probably the the two biggest things. And
0: then I, so then I kind of do want to tie this into baseball a little bit. You talk about kind of all those things you can also apply to the field, right? So did you, did you imagine the success you were going to have when you were going into the service academy that you've had on the field and have those things that you've kind of learned along the way? Do you feel like that's made it almost easier for you when it's time to perform on the field?
1: A hundred percent. So I think, uh, like if we go into time management, being able to basically block off how much I'm going to sleep, um, being able to still wake up early, almost take my time, um, having breakfast and all that on game days, being able to get to the field and all that kind of stuff at a reasonable time to where, you know, I'm not always rushing for stuff. I can take the time to roll out, warm up what I need, get early work on certain things if I need it. So I think, That's been a big help. And then obviously being able to handle criticism and stuff is big. I think if you look at D1 athletes in any sport at any school, a lot of them handle probably a lot of criticism. And the Air Force Academy isn't any different, right? Our coaches expect a lot of us, but it's for good reason, right? They want us to do well. They want us to succeed. And so that is why they they demand so much.
2: You mentioned uh, at the onset when you're talking about the decision to go to Air Force as the the fact that you felt that it was more about you, the person, than it was you, the baseball player. And that's something that when you're being recruited to play baseball at a lot of colleges, that that gets lost for a lot of people, right? It gets lost in the student. It gets lost in the parents. It gets lost in the coaches. And everybody forgets that there's a lot that goes into these decision-making things. Is that something that obviously they brought for you? that made it so enticing to you? And was that part of the reason that became like, cause that's kind of the the whole purpose of a service academy is serving more than yourself, becoming a well-rounded person, not just an athlete, being able to have be the athlete as the secondary of what you're doing at school. And did that start to take shape when, as you went through the recruiting process of, wow, like I can see myself as being this person that's going to thrive in this environment. Mm Mm-hmm. 100%. 100%. I think it's really hard to imagine that stuff when you're in high school.
1: But once you get here and you you've been here for like a year or more, you really start to see how much you've grown in term and how many I guess opportunities is the big word. How many opportunities you've had. So, you know, I've been strapped into fighter jets, I've ridden on Air Force cargo jets, gotten to play baseball on top of all of that all over the country at, you know, a bunch of SEC schools, big 12 schools, big 10 schools, all that good stuff. Um, been to conference championships, been to a regional, but also you look at academics, I've taken all these hard classes and stuff. So it really, it's hard to imagine when you're getting recruited, how many different opportunities academies will provide to you. And then when you get here, you're getting so many emails and stuff about different everythings, right? Volunteer opportunities, um, all sorts of different stuff, new classes they're they're offering. So I think it's – I mean, like I said, it's hard to imagine before you get here, but it's a blast once you do.
2: So was that something that came from you was that your parents kind of putting that on you like of like hey like this is a 40 year decision not a 4 year decision don't worry about the logos worry about the situation was that something like obviously you're a very mature guy from the conversations that we've had from the stories that I've heard of when you were in high school as well. But I'd also imagine there there is a side of 18-year-old Sam that might have not had the maturity and that has developed since he's got the Air Force. So was that something that was, was it your environment? Was it motivated by you? What were kind of the factors that went into that?
1: I think my parents were a big part of it. My mom always stressed, and I know you guys have probably said this a million times, is go somewhere you're cared about you know, where the staff wants you, um, mm-hmm. don't just commit to a school because you're going to get a lot of likes on Instagram or Twitter or whatever. And so she just always stressed that go somewhere you're cared about and somewhere you enjoy being. Um, and then my dad was, he was super hands off. He was like, the military would be cool. You know, playing baseball anywhere else would be cool. He thought <laughs> whatever would be cool. So, um, I definitely am appreciative that my parents didn't really try to push me in any direction at the end of the day. They just, you know, they wanted me to be happy and they wanted me to go somewhere I was cared about.
0: I, I, I'm going to kind of, I am going to dive a little bit into the baseball thing because as Trevor started to read your accolades here, two-time Mountain West, golden spikes. I mean, your triple slash line last year. I don't know if you know it, if you look into that thing, you had hundred hits. Like you just, the numbers, especially from last year, just kind of, it's incredibly impressive. And, and obviously you're very accomplished now. Do you ever take a second to like take a step back and and think about how much you've accomplished to this point or because you have another year and you have goals for this year, do you just kind of put it aside and not even worry about it? Cause it really is your, your baseball resume reads like, I mean, there's not a lot of guys who have put together the college career that you're putting together.
1: I have, I I think about it every now and then. And then when I catch myself thinking about it, I try to push it off. Um, And, you know, I basically try to say, you know, Whenever I've moved on from college baseball, I'll come back and I'll I'll watch old games and I'll think about it and, you know, kind of reminisce in the moment and that kind of stuff. But I think right now, because I'm still in it, you know, we we still have lofty goals for for this next year as a team. And I think because of that, I I do try to push it off.
0: And I I just am curious because you guys, you know, you've been a big piece of this, especially last year and... Kind of would, you know, with everything that's built in, you mentioned how um, great your coaching staff's been with the development and and giving their time when you guys have such a cramped schedule to come back after practice and do stuff. Kind of how would you talk about their development and their development of you and and the development style of Air Force Baseball? And, and, you know, because you guys have so much on your plate. And as Trevor kind of put it, you guys really are. You're the epitome of student athlete, right, where it's second, where some of these bigger schools. You know, you're there to play baseball and play baseball only have, you know, kind of describe to us a little bit about the style of Air Force baseball and kind of the development and practice and and things like that.
1: Mm -hmm. So I think the fall is the fall, the winter and the summer are all big times for personal development in terms of, you know, we need you to get stronger. We need you to get faster. And you have a lot of time to work on individual stuff hitting-wise, infield-wise, but they also leave a lot of it up to you. So, obviously, we're going to have individual time built in to almost every practice where you're with your little position group and you're working on some specific that day. But I think the staff understands that we have certain goals that we want to meet, like, individually. And so, it's also – they leave a lot of it up to us. So, if we want to work more on hitting, like, personally – then we need to take initiative and reach out to the coaches. And they're always available, which is awesome. Um, a lot of times you'll get a text. Like this weekend, for example, we'll get a text and be like, hey, text me anytime you want to come hit and you can come swing it. Or um, like our infield guy, trading Tamia, he's always available. I'll just shoot him a text be like, hey, can you um, stay with me? So like yesterday we had live ABs for – an hour and a half, two hours. And I just asked, Hey, can you stay with me after and just work on some stuff? So I think their availability is a big difference from what I imagine a lot of other Division One schools are like in terms of I don't know how many other Division One schools you can be at where you can simply text the coach, hey can you stay after today? Like day of, I'll text them in the morning and say, hey, can you stay late tonight? Um, just help me out. Like I've been working on something and want to get your ideas on it. So I think they're big on that. Our pitching has been, we've gotten a lot more into the data, I guess, all around pitching and hitting, uh, but pitching big on track, man, and rap Soto stuff. Um, which I think is, is awesome for our pitching staff. Cause they're going to keep getting better and better and they're going to help us win games. So I think, yeah, I think the number one thing I love about our staff um, and how they develop us is just their availability and how they're always willing to help.
2: I love that. And and you mentioned a little bit there as kind of you taking the initiative of reaching out and trying to get that extra work. Is that something mm-hmm. maybe I'm reading too much into it with it being a service academy of everything, but in terms of developing you into the potential leaders of your own life and potential leaders in in the military aspects, is that something that they're trying to create a culture of, of disciplined individuals that are internally motivated and understand what needs to be done on their own. And they're there to support in every way, rather than spoon feeding you everything at every step of the way, like a lot of division one programs will do because development of baseball is the only focus at some of these schools and they might not get those o- opportunities to develop you as a leader and getting that discipline that you're gonna need to be successful inside and outside of baseball.
1: I think you nailed it right on the head. I mean they know our plates are full every day. We have stuff going on all day from early morning to late at night. So I think they're not gonna force you to get extra work in and get help when you need it. Um yeah I, I you nailed it. You said it perfectly.
0: And, and let's talk a little bit now about kind of you and, and what makes you so successful. Cause uh, I know you're, you're a switch hitter and, and, and th- I know that's not easy. Um, th- that kind of thing. What do you feel like has made you most successful since when you stepped foot on campus to where you're at now?
1: Um, I think the big thing is, is using their availability to your advantage. I think, a lot my freshman and sophomore year, and I still do it, but early on it was how much could I just get in the cage and hit? Um, How many ground balls could I take? Because at that point it was like I just need to see reps after reps after reps to get to the point where I can play collegiate baseball and and be consistent. And then I think once you kind of get that down, you can work more on the – the nitty gritty type of stuff, mechanical, more fine tuning. But I think that the biggest thing was just getting as many, like taking as many swings and getting as many ground balls, I guess, as possible.
2: So we had a, I mean, we ended up recording somebody, something with a, with another player who plays at the North Carolina. Um, And I know I had pitched the idea to you about getting in the cage and now I'm completely regretting not doing it because I want to get in the weeds so much because One of the things that blows my mind, right, about somebody like yourself is you're talking about 28 doubles, right, which is just an awesome thing to highlight, awesome thing to look at producing power numbers and things like that. You walked twice as many times as you struck out. And usually as somebody has been a a hitting coach and worked with guys, it's like, hey, like if you want to hit for more power, we might need to sacrifice some swing and miss or you can be a guy who doesn't swing and miss, but we might not hit for power, right? Usually you mm-hmm. have to pick one. How? How? That's all I got to know.
1: I think the way I split it up is more count specific. So I think early in the count, your goal is to do damage. Like if it's OO, I don't want to hit a single, right? I want to backspin a double in a gap. I want to hit a bomb, although I don't hit tons of bombs. But, you know, I like to try sometimes. That's your goal. When, when you get one strike or two strikes um based on the situation your goal isn't to do damage when i have two strikes i don't want to hit the ball of the yard um like i want to hit a backside liner get a single get on base let the guys behind me hit you know because like last year i had the pleasure of hitting in front of jay thomas in the entire season dude hit 20 or 21 jacks if i get to two strikes. I just need to get on base. So I need to have the best at bat possible. Backside singles totally fine. I can live with that, right? But what I can't live with is getting super big, 0-2, thinking, oh, I need to hit bomb here and then swing a miss at a changeup, roll over to first base, something like that. So I think the, the biggest thing is being more
2: intentional with um, your approach and different counts. I'm at an intersection right now and there's 10 different ways I can go. So we're going to, we're going to go this way. Um, Any mechanical adjustments in a two strike approach or is it just a mindset shift?
1: Um, Oh, I've actually gone back and forth on this over the years. Um, So early on I was like freshman year and kind of sophomore year. I like choking up and stuff. Mm -hmm. I've kind of gotten away from that. And now I'm more of a, after actually talking to, talk to, Paul Skeen's a little bit hitting wise, just seeing what they teach over, over in Baton Rouge. And a lot of it's about getting your foot down and seeing the ball. Um, so at the end of the day, if you, if you don't see the ball well, you're not going to hit it well. And so I think when I get to two strikes, that's more of how I shift. I want to get my foot down slightly earlier, not obscenely early to the point where I'm lunging over it, but slightly earlier, just so I maybe lose some rhythm, but I can live with that, right? Like, I don't need to be perfect rhythm, perfect timing, squaring up balls to hit doubles. Right, like that's not my goal. Um, I want to hit low line drives, ground balls, force something to happen.
2: That guy Jay Johnson, he's a he's a pretty good uh, hitting guy. He's he scored runs I'd, everywhere he's yeah, been. So I'd so that's so. a pretty good. Uh, could good, good baseline to follow with what they're doing um, mm-hmm. so this is my this is my question as well and and this is something that kind of been has always been my my thought process on two strike approach is if you've got a good enough swing you should trust it swinging three times, right? So mm-hmm. oh, is that yeah. kind of something that that you kind of agree with where it's like, dude, if I'm if I'm good enough to put up the numbers that I put up with less than two strikes, why would I completely even alter it? Even if it's just choking up or scooting an inch mm-hmm. closer, why would I alter that with two strikes when I know how good I am? I trust my abilities against this pitcher. I can still mm-hmm. compete. I completely agree. So the reason I stopped choking up because when I
1: was thinking about it is you train, you never train choked up. You never choke up when you're in BP and the cages, that kind of stuff, or at least most people don't. And so for me, it didn't make sense that I was always practicing with a 34 inch long bat, um, the barrels between, I don't know, the 33rd inch and maybe the 30th inch. And now I'm choking up an inch and now the sweet spot of my barrel's off from where I think it is. And so I think, that's kind of when I stopped wanting to choke up because um, your bat isn't what you've taken hundreds of swings with it as. It's literally a different length. Um, I also never really change where I stand in the box unless it's pitcher dependent. So this guy's sinker heavy and he's going to live outer half to lefties the whole day. Okay. Maybe I'll scoot up on a plate. But like when I got the two strikes, I didn't like doing it because now your concept of the zone is different. I think for younger hitters, like when you're in middle school and maybe even high school, that's okay because the zones are slightly bigger. So getting up on the plate is not necessarily a bad idea. But I think once you get to college, the zone is shrunk. Um, umpires are better. Having a concept of the zone is more important.
0: Yeah, you're not going to get punched out on the stuff on the other side of the white line as much in college <laughs> as you do in high school. Exactly, yeah. High school pitchers, exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Whereas... a lot of – yeah, you, you feast in the other batter's <laughs> box in high school. with yeah. just a fastball to two strikes. Yeah. It's like, oh, well, that was <laughs> easy. <laughs> um, exactly. So when when you get into two strike then – because I, I find it so fascinating because obviously, you know, to put up the numbers that, that you do – you you have success in pretty much every count and and to walk as much as you do, as Trevor pointed out, um, you obviously understand the zone. So talk a little bit about when you're in two strikes, let's stay there for a second. Are you pitch or location or neither? You're just strictly what, you know, you were talking about from LSU where it's foot down, see the ball. Are you sitting on anything? Are you sitting in an area? Are you just kind of fighting it at all costs
1: to get barrel on the ball? So I would say 80% of the time, there's no, I'm not sitting a pitch or a location. Um, it's more, I basically imagine roughly like where the strike zone is, like my concept of the strike zone. And if I see a fastball here or any spin that's, that pops out of his hand, I'm gonna I'm gonna go for it because um, those are the cases where it's gonna be a strike. Um, when there are certain guys that you know. This guy gets to two strikes. He's eighty percent high fastball, or he's eighty percent slider. Two strikes. In that instance, I will probably sit on a pitch or a location. But that's just because we have the kind of the data. I have the data to back it up. So if they're, you know, if they're like, yeah, he's eighty percent slider with two strikes, and he blows my doors off with a fastball, I tip my cap and I go back to the dugout. You know, um, but then the next at bat, I get to two strikes. He hangs a slider and I hit it for a double then it's like, okay, I still win. You know what I mean? Um, so I think, yeah, it's, it's mostly just how well can you compete and how well can you make them be in the zone. And I think part of that is, you know, when I pitched in high school, you get a guy 0-2-1-2, you're not throwing him a ball in the zone. So I think understanding that, what the pitcher is trying to do, if nobody's on, they're probably going to spike some balls. Like they're not going to miss down the middle usually. But you know, as you get to two, two, three, two, now it's like okay, there's a much higher chance they throw me an actual strike here, so I'm more likely to sit on something then.
2: You have you you have a big league approach. That's that's what I'm going to give you uh, credit for because like the stuff you're saying, trying to translate that information to college seniors sometimes is hard, right? And it's Mm -hmm. so easy to say that from you know. I was holding a clipboard telling guys like, Hey, like the data tells us he's 70% this. And like, it's so much harder to execute, which is why I never would get on a guy Mm -hmm. if we didn't, you know, do what was needed to be done. But to hear you speak that way in so much detail about being able to understand data and put it in such a simple way is spectacular to hear from a college guy. And obviously it shows in the success that you've had. Let's circle back to a little bit less than two strike approach. Are you, is there a little bit more sitting? Is there a little bit more crunching data and trust in like, Hey, Hey, and two Oh, I mean, I, I know I'm going to, I'm going to make Dan feel bad here, but I always say pitching coaches are stupid, right? Was what I always used to say. They're creatures of habit, right? So if this guy's fallen into a routine of, Hey, two Oh fastball, two Oh fastball, mm-hmm. two one fastball, it's like, now it's time to get on the gas pedal and, Change the game with one swing of the bat. With mm-hmm. Less than two strike, is there maybe a little bit sitting, or are you just good enough to get your foot down and react?
1: It is a lot more sitting. Um, and I just, once again, it's more based on the pitcher in terms of pitch or location. A guy that mixes a lot of pitches, um, I'm going to sit more location for obvious reasons. Because if I'm sitting, you know, middleway fastball, I can still adjust to a hung changeup or a hung slider or a curveball. Whereas if I'm just sitting, let's say he's a, a two pitch guy, fastball, curveball, I have a 50% chance of getting it right. You know what I mean? Um, so earlier in the count, once again, when I'm trying to do more damage, I'm, I'm going to sit something. And and
0: how much is your approach scouting report reliant then? You know, because obviously you're talking about <laughs> trusting the data and, you know, I'm assuming you've, you've had an approach for a long time now, you've been playing baseball for a long time, but as you've gotten into college and, you, and you're starting to get more and more data, especially in this age of baseball where you're probably getting all kinds of numbers thrown at you or at least available to you, um, how much of your approach day to day, like, all right, we're going into a series, this is the Friday guy, this is how he's probably going to pitch me, how much are you relying on that? And how much are you just like, all right, I'm going to take bits and pieces. Like you said, I know he's 70% fastball here. So that's when I'll use the data. Other than that, I'm going to, you know, do
1: kind of what we've been talking about here. Just bits and pieces for me. Um, Because when I start to think about, you know, okay, this guy's 50% fastball and then 20% this and 30% this, it starts to get confusing. I really try to pick on outliers. So, oh, oh, this guy's 80% fastball. It's like, okay, if I get, Mm -hmm. if I see this guy three times, he's going to throw me an oh fastball at least once. Um, And obviously it's, you know, situation dependent. Maybe I come on with a guy on third every time and he doesn't, but that's also part of just knowing the game. But yeah, I, I really just pick on outliers at the end of the day.
2: Is it a stereotype to say a service academy player knows the game or the game within the game? Is that a baseball stereotype right there? (laughs) <laughs> Ooh, uh,
1: maybe, but I think it's
2: true. Because I think um, when you it look at service <laughs> academies, yeah, you yeah. don't
1: have the the best athletes or the top yeah. recruits or anything. And so mm-hmm. I think a lot of the things they preach is um, the game within the game, like moving yeah. runners over, getting runners in. Mm-hmm. And obviously they tailor it to the kind of hair you are. Because, um, like, for us, they – They broke it down into, like, there's, like, three different types of of hitters, basically. Um, I can only remember two of them. But one was the ball player, the guy who moves guys over, gets guys in. Like, you mm. know, he's not going to hit 20 jacks this year. And then one was the um, just, like, the pure hitter, the guys that – like the Jay Thomasons of the world that are just going to smash. Um, But in knowing yourself – and it takes some honest reflection, Right. So, like, I don't think high school kids that you need to – if you're 160 pounds, you probably shouldn't be trying to hit home runs. You know what I mean? Like, be a good ball player. And then once you get bigger, the home runs will come. Yeah, I think, yeah, the game within the game is definitely an important part of, of how all the service academies probably play.
2: By the way Dan I'm going to cut you off I know you got the next question. I think it's uh, Coach Deggs, the pack. Um, that's where that stuff came from with the ball player hitter and then ours was slugger. I believe we had 3 when when I was mm-hmm. at Arcadia we did the same thing where we grouped our guys cuz it was just easier mm-hmm. from like a practice standpoint. Yeah. Like we would do our we would structure rounds for guys and like if a ball player is a guy like we might be go runner on second less than you know less than 2 or mm-hmm zero out, try to get them over. And then if we had a slugger, we'd be, you know, off the foul pole. Um, But Dan, I know you got a question, but I was just like, that piqued my interest because we pretty much did the same thing offensively.
0: I'm over here. My brain started to, to, to work here. We were talking about your walk to strikeout ratio and realizing that you play at the Air Force Academy. I'm starting to work on a theory here. Do you you guys have to take an eye exam to get in there?
1: Is that true Um, or false?
0: I feel like I heard that sometime.
1: I don't. So, you can't uh well actually no you can be i'm honestly i don't think you do so when you're here you take one um to fly but like there's tons of guys here that have glasses or contacts um contrary to pop relief there are guys that are colorblind okay um which i wouldn't have known before i got here either but yeah uh, because yeah i mean we have we have vision training and stuff like that that we do too
0: there you go. So there's vision training yeah. involved. Because I'm looking at mm-hmm. a lot like looking through your guys' numbers. Like you guys don't like there's some strikeouts, but you guys walk a good bit. So I'm just wondering, mm-hmm. especially with some of these offensive numbers, to be in the Air Force, I'd imagine you have to have good eyesight. And mm-hmm. you're doing vision yeah. training. Like that, like yeah. coincidentally or not, that actually helps on the offensive side to to get oh, in yeah. the zone. I know that's not really a question, but I was just over here, my wheels started turning on the uh, on the on the vision thing and, and being at the Air mm. Force Academy and looking at some of your numbers, that makes sense. So I, yeah. I didn't, I know that's not a question, but
1: our sports performance stuff is awesome. So, I mean, they have everything from, I mean, like nutrition, like n- literally nutritionists down there who'll break it down meal by meal, how much you need to eat macros, micros, everything. They're great. Um, and then obviously yeah, we have vision reaction time, um, of scans for like body comp, all sorts of all sorts of fun stuff that we do down there. So it all it Are all you definitely. 2020?
2: Helps. Are you twenty twenty or twenty fifteen? Yeah. Uh the last time I had a
1: true exam I was I was like twenty thirteen in my yeah, knew it. Right eye and twenty fifteen in my left eye or something.
2: There you so. go. I always say so. I'm like 2360. Um like mm. realize, uh like I'm I'm bad. Like if I took my contacts out, I couldn't see this screen in front of me. Yeah. My fiance has 2015. Like fingers mm-hmm. crossed that our children get her vision and not mine because we'll we'll be running into stuff when we're when we're young. We won't be hitting baseballs at a young age with that. Yeah. Um I want to go in a in a little bit um different direction with the hitting side of things. So obviously mechanics, right? And and that's such plays such a big part, but the big question for me, because, we, you know, we're sitting here, we're 35 minutes into the conversation with a lot of it being hitting in baseball wise. What point in your career did you start to realize that approach meant more? And I, maybe I'm reading between the lines. Maybe it doesn't for you. Maybe you are a big mechanics guy. But that approach was so much more imperative to success than necessarily how you attack the ball or how you got on plane or your launch angle and all the stuff that kind of came with that.
1: Um, I honestly think it was my sophomore year. Because um, I had a pretty good year, but when I'd go back and I'd watch video of my school my swing, and I'd be like, "That's not like my swing's fine mechanically, but it's not like a when you look at like Otani's kind of weird, but you, I mean, I don't know. You look at like Bats or you look at Trout and these guys, like you just look at their swing and you just go like down the list of like I guess common mechanical things, and you are like, "Man, that dude does everything." When you look at my swing, it's not exactly like that. Um, like I have like a slight hitch with my hands and I'm pretty tall, um, throughout the swing. So I think, yeah, my sophomore year, I kind of realized like a lot of it's approach. Um, but I think once you start getting to very, and this is like very high level pitching, um, I'm talking about like top power five arms and like pro ball arms. I think that's when. Um, mechanics start to be more important. But I think when you're in high school and even like when you're a younger guy in college, a majority of what you do should be focused on approach.
0: That's, that's honestly incredible to hear you say that. You're the first person who I've ever heard say that. And I think it makes a lot of sense. And it's funny because when you look at kind of the landscape of college baseball right now, everything is so individualized training and mechanics based that Mm -hmm. things like approach both on the pitching and the offensive side kind of get thrown out the window so to hear you kind of talk about and and how much that makes sense right until you're facing those elite type guys if you just have a good approach you can make up and cover up for some of those mechanical flaws if, Mm -hmm. if you will um but mechanically speaking i i am kind of curious you know as a guy who we've said it a million times you know You don't strike out a lot, but you also have the power. Are there a couple things you are looking at and looking for in your swing? Are you a guy who you're trying to get slotted early? Are you, you know, a big leg kick guy? Kind of walk me through kind of what your two or three things are that if you know they're on, that's when you're going good.
1: One of the main things is when my front foot lands. um, And – there's, there's so much hitting stuff on Twitter now between, I mean, teacher man's the one I always see not saying that like, I love his stuff or I hate his stuff, but um, his videos always pop up for me, but like when my foot lands, cause a lot of times I'll be like, man, I'm, I'm late all the time, but I'm starting earlier and I'm still late. And then I'll look, I'll watch video and it will be like, Oh, it's cause he was already throwing the ball and my foot wasn't even close to being down. So by the time my foot got down and I swung, like I got sawed off and hit a backside like weak ground ball um so i think footland's a big one and the other posture um and i kind of got that just from watching big league games like i don't watch a ton of baseball but like when i do i really look at um like how hitters get into certain positions i guess and so like when you watch like i don't know arenado or, or trout um like when they hit certain balls that are out of the zone that shouldn't be hit well and they still hit them well, there's a reason they're hitting them well, right? And a lot of it has to do with, one, they're super talented and obviously they're really good at what they do, but um, posture is a big one. Like if you're not like near the ball, you can't hit it well. Um, so I guess that's kind of one of the the two big things I guess I look at.
2: All right, so so let's get in the, the weeds a little bit on posture because when I first – you know, I've always been a, a swing guy, so I've always cared about the hitting side of things and, and understood the swing. It's like five years ago, I would say I watch Arenado swing, and it's like, is it a nice swing? But it plays, mm-hmm. and he bangs. but yeah. he's, You know, at the time he was in Colorado, he's like, mm-hmm. how much is that? And I remember, I mean, I probably had this conversation with Dan, maybe even on this podcast. Trevor now, like, sees. The, what you're talking about, posture, staying through the baseball, holding mm-hmm. his holding his posture through, holding direction to right center, and how that allows him now to pull the ball with backspin, not hook and mm-hmm. foul, not do all those things that come with, you know, chasing the pull side homer. Is that something that, especially for a guy that you said you don't hit a ton of palms, so I'm sure you're not going out there and chasing it, but understanding that when you do get yourself in an advantage count of understanding, like. I might be 2-0 and I'm trying to go poolside jack, but that means my posture is even that much more important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I think
1: a big flaw of mine, but also of a lot of other younger hitters is they get into advantage counts and they're like, oh, I have to get bigger. Like I have to try more. I have to do more. And then because of that, everything kind of breaks down. So mm-hmm. They don't have that good posture. They're not on time it all kind of falls apart. Um, So I think staying within yourself and just trusting the mechanics that you've worked on um, that you've hit so much with is, is important when you're in those advantage counts.
2: What's your external cue then that allows you to, to stay in a good position to hit? Are you an oppo guy like on time for right center in, in those counts to make sure it doesn't break down?
1: Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, when I'm um, when I'm ahead, I'll usually go like backspun. Um, Lane Olive, actually, he's the one that I got this verbiage from. He coaches at Apex now, I believe. So he actually was he was our assistant when I played for Danny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he would say backspun over the batter's eye, like bomb over the batter's eye. So that's what I think when I'm in advantage counts. Yeah. Um, and I think that helps me from getting
2: too pull happy. So in that that allows you now to get to the pole and not hook it foul, right, is mm-hmm. by staying yep. a big part and understanding, hey, that my direction needs to stay to the batter's eye. And if I catch it out in front, that means I'm going to backspin it off the pole mm-hmm. rather than this was the epitome of my college career, 2-0 count. I get big front shoulder, takes off to the third base dugout. I freaking hook a ball, barrel it, starts fair, and ends up 40 feet foul. And then I just look yep. like a dummy because now I'm hitting it a 2-1 count, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree.
0: Um, just so then walk me through because external cues, like that's something to me that is is so important and talking about, you know, like you just said, backspin to the batter's eye. Um, especially in today's game, because I the, the pitching side of things is is where I, I tend to be more fascinated, but guys are trying to you know, you'll see a lot more of that elevated fastball up in the zone. I would imagine as someone who likes to stay big, that's probably what guys try to do to you a lot is run those things to the top of the zone. Kind of walk me through. What's the key? Are you someone who just likes to think about, Hey, I, you know, you're you obviously have good eyes. I want to stay on top of the baseball to drive it through. Or are you talking about, is it more important than when you're getting those fastballs up in the zone to stay tall on those? What's kind of the, the thought process or the, the cues that you kind of walk through when you're trying to get to the stuff that's, that's, you know, being peppered up in the zone.
1: Mm. I think, yeah, it's, it's stay tall, but it's stay tight. So as long as my hands follow a tight path, um, I'll be fine. Like mm-hmm. I can get there. Obviously there's certain guys. I mean, we even have guys on our staff that are high spin, high velo guys that want you to chase up in the zone. So I think if, once again, this kind of goes back to the data. Like if I know, or if I I've seen from previous batters that this guy spins it well, he throws hard and he's living up in the zone. Then I'm going to try to lay off it. But the guys that don't have the super spinny, uh, induced vertical break fastballs, it's basically stay tall and stay tight.
2: Are you, do you think about your hands when you hit? Mm-hmm. I try not to Yeah, try not to. Yeah. Okay, cool. Cause, uh, That's such a, it's such a conversation that I like some guys are handsy hitters. Right. And like, it just works for them. And then some guys are like, I want my hands to be along for the ride. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and being able to be so efficient with my lower half and and things like that. So you mentioned staying tall. You could tell me if I'm, I'm right or wrong here. Do you struggle more with heavy sink than high ride? Yeah. Yeah, because you're tall and then you have to work down. I mean, now I'm mm-hmm. giving away trade secrets. I'm sorry, Mountain West pitchers. No, like, it's fine. You're going to have to find better ways to get them out. See, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> I hit 426 last year, dude. What do you mean? <laughs> I don't struggle with anything. But I'd imagine as a guy who stays tall, right, it's you're working. If you get beat firm, right, if it's a hard sinker, it's going to catch your bat path when it's still on the downward plane rather mm-hmm. than on the upswing. Whereas the high pass, exactly, yeah. you're just playing with it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. And no questions there. Just, just curious as to, yeah. as to how, so what's the adjustment then for the, for the heavy sink, hard fastball, because I've seen, it's something that I've been curious as because Jackson holiday is a guy at the big league level or at the professional level. He's a guy who struggles with where my viewpoint of what the hole is in his swing is if you can get sink hard on him, again, same thing. The only way you're going to beat him is because that bat path is working down. What's your adjustment to kind of overcompensate to that? Do you just m- take a mental note and say, "Hey, this guy is high V, low heavy sink, and I just need to do a better job of getting behind it and on plane."
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah, it's basically I have to beat the ball to the spot. Um, so those are the one basically sinker guys are the one types of guys where I'll move where I stand in the box. Um, if it's you know if he's mid eighties. With like lots of sink, um, I'll probably move up. But if it's power fastball sink, um, I'll be back in the box like normal. But I'll probably scoot up on the plate because if he, I mean, if he beats me with three front door sinkers, then you know. And this is all I, when I talk about hitting. I usually talk about it as a lefty because that's what I do more. Um, yeah. But it, it's usually the same from the right side too. Like if a guy, especially at the college level, can beat you with three hard front door sinkers, then you know, tip your calf. Um, But, yeah, basically just try to beat the ball to the spot. Just the the curiosity there where
0: you're talking about how you you swing more from the left side, obviously, because you see more righties. Is there anything different about your swing from either side, or have you gotten it to a point now where everything's pretty much from the same right to left? Like, are are you also like guys with heavy sink? You struggle a little bit from, you know, you're better hitting from one side than the other? Ooh
1: um honestly I'm not it's tough I think the left side I, I actually probably have better bat to ball skills um, and honestly I haven't looked at the data like the splits between them but from the left side I think I have better bat to ball probably don't strike out as much uh, just like based on how many at bats um, but from the right side I hit more power so I don't know if that just means I'm better at turning the barrel, I'm better at syncing up my right-handed swing or what. Um, but I do tend to hit for more power
2: from the right side. Is stance and every, like, feels, is it similar or do you kind of go into a, a, to a different situation on each side?
1: Ooh, I, ooh, that's a tough one. I think from the, from the left, I, I usually think more about my lower body. Whereas okay. from the right, I do think more about my upper body, uh-huh. um, just because from the left, because I face so many live arms, lefty. I trust my upper body, um, and I really want to be on time with my lower body and just let my upper body work. Whereas from the right side, obviously I don't see as many left-handed pitchers, so from the right side, it's more about like getting my just getting my foot down on time. Um, And then I think more about like bat path and hands and stuff.
2: Is there any big leaguers or anybody that you kind of look at and, and try to like hear talk about switching? Like I listened to Ian Hap's podcast and he was talking about like, he blew my mind the other day because he was talking about how different his approaches are from each side of the plate. And Mm -hmm. I was like, dude, you hit, that well in the big leagues think like being that completely different from both sides of the plate like i -hmm. I couldn't imagine it from both sides of the plate being doing doing the same thing let alone like he is natural loft left-handed like can get around the ball gets more in the air like has to keep his front side closed then right-handed he's like completely different hitter are there any big leaders that you've kind of listened to talk that have helped you kind of guide your way through being a switch hitter I think the most was Chipper Jones.
1: Um, I think he's the one who said it because he he would always say the side that you're struggling with, you need to hit twice as much on that side as the other side. doesn't matter lefty versus righty or what. So like if you're sucking lefty, you need to hit twice as much like in practice and stuff um, and obviously vice versa. So I think that is kind of the biggest thing I've taken away from professional switch hitters. I haven't actually uh, listened to a lot from, I guess, more, current switch hitters but
0: so I want to ask this this thing because I'm just curious you you seem so in tune with understanding you know who you are as a hitter does that help you be able to do both do you think like knowing who you are and what you do well and what you maybe don't do well does has that helped you continue to kind of climb as a switch hitter through the levels
1: Mm -hmm. I think so because I think uh, obviously there are times when um, like my right side actually gets I get the ball in the air a little more. I think that might be why I hit more bombs from the right side um, but I also sometimes because of that it 's earlier swing decisions, so sometimes I swing and miss more from the right side because i 'm getting the head out more. so I think knowing how to work on both sides separately it 's not always doing the same drill for both sides, so like on a given day it i don 't necessarily need to work on posture from both sides like maybe from the right side it's like making my swing decision later almost whereas from the left side it's Mm -hmm. like dude get the head out party out front try to hit a missile off the right center field wall kind of
2: no that's awesome. Yeah, I mean that's that's great. That's a that's a ton of good stuff. And I see Dan smirking because we were talking about before we got on air that uh, I, when I when I struggle with what I'm going to say, I always go with "That's awesome," and I say it like ten times an episode. So that was the first time I did it today. So <laughs> that was pretty impressive. Um, but obviously, we want to be respectful of your time. Um, you're a college student, so hanging out with a bunch of mid twenty uh, year old baseball fans is probably not how you envision spending your spending your night um, without, uh, without school tomorrow. But I mean, it's a ton of just inf- good information. I mean, it's, it kind of makes a lot of sense why you've had the success that you've had. Um, and, and obviously, I mean, again, this is not question anything in general, super fired up to, to be able to watch you go. And, and Dan, do you have any questions for Sam before we let him go? Yeah. I'm just
0: curious. Cause looking through your guys' schedule, you guys play all over the place and you play in some really fun, different places against a lot of fun different teams what's your favorite non-conference road trip and your favorite conference road trip to take
1: oh i think my favorite that's tough um i'll probably give my two favorite non-conference road trips dbu is actually up there that was we haven't been there since my freshman year their place is cool and um you know there's a ton of air force people in texas so a bunch of DBU fans, bunch of Air Force fans. It was it was a blast. The other one is probably Texas, um, big old stadium, a lot of history. You look up in their outfield, and it's like you know, a million national championships and whatever. So um, <laughs> that's always that's always cool to see. Conference wise, probably it has to be San Diego State. Um, we actually we stay on Navy North Island, which is where Top Gun was filmed. Yeah, Um, So we stay right on the beach where, you know, beach football scene, beach volleyball scene in the first one, I think it is right where that stuff's filmed. Uh, So
2: that's that's always awesome.
1: Um, Staying on the beach is cool. Yeah.
2: So I got to ask you, best Mountain West yard to hit at. Does the ball does is Air Force the place with the juice, the jet stream, obviously, or is there uh, some other parks maybe in some high elevation that you like hitting at? Think, man. It's probably it's
1: probably Reno, Nevada. Actually, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. the only thing about our park is it is the ball flies, but it's huge. Um, you know, four fifteen to center, three sixty to left, three thirty to right. But literally from center field all the way to the right, there's a giant wall. Um, but Reno is you know I don't know twelve to fifteen foot wall whole way around. Yeah. Um, Not super loud. I mean, center center's deep, but gaps and lines are. It's
2: a fun time. That's good. Second one about the, the fields, because obviously it's a lot different than North Carolina when you're heading out there and having some of those fields in the areas that you have. Have you ever been playing defensively and just overlooked the backstop that you guys have there from from behind home plate and just been like, in awe of the fact that you're just sitting in the middle of the Rocky mountains playing a baseball game right then. And like maybe potentially had a gotten beat to a ball that you might've gotten to because you're too busy looking at the snow capped Rockies. Um, I, I definitely take
1: it for granted. Sometimes funny story that we get a lot of flyovers. Um, a lot of them are random. So recently during our, our blue white world series in the fall, uh, Jay Thomason was actually, we had a, we had a flyover and it was like, it was getting dark. Like sun was starting to set. Flyover. Um, he's looking at the flyover. Ball is pitched. Ground ball to him. He like comes back, tries to make a play, and I think he like booted it or something. Um, and he didn't tell us to like. I think either after the game or like the next week that he was like, "Yeah, dude, I was just staring at that
2: C one thirty the whole time." <laughs> so, yeah, it's, you- it's beautiful, man. Oh it's 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 gorgeous. I couldn't imagine. I mean, you're sitting there talking about your sports performance stuff. I mean, I I'm, I'm going to speak this to existence because I want it to happen, but Dan and I have been on campus at a couple s- schools, done some facility tours, have some more in tow. Dude, I would love to do get out there and and see oh, yeah. what you guys got going with um and oh, be yeah. able to get on campus and and do that and get to highlight your baseball facilities and everything. But it's, I mean, there's nothing like it. I I grew up skiing, snowboarding, um, out West. Um, we would take a trip a year and and like you fly into that area and it's just like, you look out, you open up your window and you're like, it's like, you'd think it was heaven if you didn't know any better. Right. Cause you're flying over the, and I'm sure you've gotten used to it at this point, flying, flying coast to coast every so often get back there for school. But it is, beautiful out there do you uh Mm -hmm. do you ski hike snowboard anything
1: i don't ski or snowboard um i probably should have learned when i was like a freshman in college and didn't play a ton but uh, i didn't unfortunately i do like hiking um i'm not very good at fishing but i enjoy going with my friends and stuff
2: but uh,
1: just being out the outdoor stuff here is unbelievable i mean there's trails everywhere there's if you Mm -hmm. are into skiing and snowboarding um There's so many resorts that are, I mean, they're all top 20 in the country easily. Mm -hmm. Some of them are probably like top 10, top five. So it's got a lot of outdoorsy stuff.
2: Yeah, that's awesome. And is it weird? This will be the last question I ask about uh, being out in Colorado. Is it weird when late May, you're probably playing a baseball game. It's what 60 degrees in the valley and there's still snow on top of those mountains. Does that ever get weird? A little bit. It's actually sometimes tough for our outfielders to pick up fly yeah. balls. Oh, off of. I believe that. Yeah. Um,
1: especially when um, even earlier, like the earlier months, but, but yeah, I mean, it can be warm and mountains can still have some snow on them if it's not warm enough. And it's that ball gets up there and it's tough to see sometimes.
2: Wow. I didn't even think about that. Dan, you have any questions about the weather out there or Anything now that we've gotten in this rabbit hole? <laughs>
0: I'm good. I'll save that for the uh, for when we have like Jim Cantore or, or, or Glenn Hurricane Schwartz on next week. I'll save my weather questions. <laughs> but I appreciate you taking the time, Sam. This has been awesome.
1: Thank you, guys. Man, I've I've loved nerding out about baseball and talking approach and hitting and obviously the academy and everything. So
2: awesome. Well, I mean, we appreciate it, Sam. And and I know from from my standpoint, and I know all our listeners will feel the same sentiment that. We're rooting for a third straight uh, Mountain West player of the year this year. Um, obviously, bigger and better things, I think, is probably your expectation, as well as everybody here is going to be a huge fan of yours. And and hearing your story and hearing you talk so much in detail about baseball and, and the importance of the Service Academy on your personal development, I mean, if, if anybody listened to this and isn't a fan of yours and, and rooting for your success, I, I don't know what they were listening to. Appreciate that. Thank you, guys. Of course, of course. Well, we appreciate you and, and thank you to all our listeners for tuning in as that will conclude our episode for today. Make sure you're subscribing to the podcast on all podcast platforms, including Apple Pods, Spotify, and anywhere you find your podcast. We also have our YouTube page. It's free. Go subscribe. Go grab your mom's phone. Subscribe. Go grab your grandma's phone. Subscribe. The subscribers, we can do more content the more we get. Post episodes weekly, always hitting your feet at 7 a.m. sharp. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at BacksideGB, Instagram at Backside Ground Balls, and TikTok at Backside Ground Ball. And most importantly, make sure you're sharing with five friends, and we'll see you next time on the Backside Ground Balls podcast.